Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Headspace, where we bring together three contributors from this month's edition of Prospect Magazine and ask them... What's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark, and as December's edition rolls off the presses, I'm thanking God we decided to push the issue back by a week to take in the US election. Because with Donald J. Trump on his way to the White House, we're living in a world turned upside down, in a way which, I suspect, many prospect readers might find a little scary. To chew over what we're calling Earthquake America and much more besides, I'm thrilled to be joined by the NPR broadcaster and literary scholar Diane Roberts, the historian Ruth Dudley Edwards, and down the line from New York, we have our US writer at large, Sam Tannenhaus. A warm welcome to you all. And as I say, we're going to be dealing with America's almighty shock, but also two other completely unexpected events of 2016 as well, namely the fallout from Brexit, as it bears in particular on the Irish border, and also Bob Dylan's Nobel Prize. Inevitably, though, we have to start with President Trump. Sam, you followed him right throughout the year. Um, and uh, were you as surprised as everyone else? And do you think he himself was surprised? We were all surprised. Certainly I was. It's a kind of shock more than surprise. Uh, His numbers were always good. He was a very adroit campaigner. But what makes this so different is that he didn't expect to win. So he's not prepared in any way to govern an enormous country. And he's got about 10 weeks to learn how to do it. (laughs) It's quite a tall order, isn't it? Do you think he's, he's capable of learning everything he's got to learn in a matter of weeks, um, Ruth? Well, they say he's a quick study, but this is certainly challenging. I mean, my position on Trump is simply that I didn't want to see somebody with an attention span of a gnat and also somebody who had emotional age of 11 becoming president. Having said that, you know, he has won a, done a terrific campaign and he has spotted something that nearly all of the politicians were missing and all the press were missing and, and all the pundits were missing. How a vast number of people in America felt utterly ignored. I mean, it was actually, with all Hillary Clinton's emphasis all the time on women and on minorities, and that being the progressive line, if you like, there were a vast number of people who suddenly decided that they were the only ones that nobody seemed to care about. I mean, essentially, your white men and a lot of white women began to think of themselves as victims and a minority too. Is that a call with your reading, Dan? It does, and I think the answer to it is largely to do with race and largely to do with the speed at which American society has been changing over the past generation. And white people freaked out 
53% of white women voted for Donald Trump. Mm. These are not poor women, most of them. They are not uneducated women, many of them. And yet, for some reason, a guy who is a confessed sexual um, predator, basically, um, who seems to have no curiosity in the world. I mean, this guy makes George W. Bush look like a statesman and a scholar. He is quite the most unqualified person I've ever seen run for any office, which includes Leon County dog catcher. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, so much was being made of Hillary Clinton's experience. But as far as I can see, it was the same stuff being recycled all the time. As Secretary of State, she went round and round and round the world. I don't know what she ever did. You know, I was listening when I, I was in Indiana last week just to why people hated her so much and why the, what contempt they had for her and so much the feeling that she disliked them. I mean, when she produced that line about the basket of deplorables being mm. half of his voters, how dare somebody who aspires to be President of the United States say that half the voters of somebody else... Are deplorable. Well, she well, shouldn't have done it, but she, and then I don't I, think she was inaccurate either. I'm sorry, she might. They might have progressive attitudes, but they're perfectly decent people. I mean, if that's a quarter of the electorate she insulted, if you put together the different groups Trump's insulted, it comes to more than a quarter. Women, black people, Mexicans. He, he did. They he, he did, didn't. You see, I and mean, why did thirty, nearly thirty percent of Hispanics vote for him? Because they don't want illegal immigrants either. He wasn't actually insulting legal immigrants. Look, I am no fan of Trump's rhetoric, but all the time he was honing into unease that they had. And I don't take it that it's it's a white supremacy thing or all, all the rest of the hysteria we're having today. Quite apart from anything else, I met a lot of people in Indiana who voted for Obama twice and who were going to vote for Trump. Well, I think that's fair point. I nevertheless think that eight years of a black man in the White House is something that was a deep and probably often unconscious shock to a lot of Americans. And Obama was delegitimized as president from the very beginning of his presidency, partly by Trump, who was the head birther, and by some Republicans in Congress, not all of them. Hillary Clinton, I think it's very interesting you talked about her, how people really dislike her. And that's something that interests me a lot and goes back to 1992 when um, she made famous statements about not being a little woman who has teas and bakes cookies. And this really upset a lot of people. It seemed to be an attack on previous first ladies. It was seen as inartful. That would be putting it nicely. But then she, uh, she was declaring herself, and as was her husband, a kind of co-president. And that upset people, too, because quite rightly, they said, well, we didn't elect Hillary Clinton, we elected Bill Clinton. And um, I think it's been almost downhill from there. Um, Sam, let's bring you back in. I mean, um, do you think with all the kind of divisive stuff that Diane has written about with real feeling that, you know, this sets back social progress and all the rest of it. We know that Donald Trump has flipped and flopped on lots of issues over the years. Do you think he could now turn off all of that kind of divisive rhetoric? Well, it's hard to know. Um, there are some things worth keeping in mind about Trump. One is he is the least ideological Republican who's been elected president probably since Richard Nixon. He began by antagonizing Republicans. Remember, not all that long ago, he was being denounced by Ted Cruz, who was his chief adversary, as being a leftist like Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. He's usefully a blank slate when it comes to ideology. Something else that's going to happen, I think, 
is the conversation we're having just now, right here, is going to end. It's going to become something very different. If you look at the election map, you see a stretch of about 2,400 miles from Philadelphia to Boise, Ohio, some 30 states, and Trump won 25 or 26 of them, and he brought Republican legislators back into office as well. This is the first Republican majority we've seen in a really long time. And it was created by someone who was outside the norms of our politics. So this conversation about gender, about race and other issues, transgender bathrooms, which at one point was actually a campaign issue, all that's going to fade away. And we're going to look at the country's geography and where people live and where the jobs are, which cities are dying, which can be saved through infrastructure programs. It's going to be a new conversation. It could possibly be a much more useful one. But it's very interesting to kind of dwell for a minute, given he's a blank slate and given the Republican Party of a, as a whole is more ideological and more extreme than I can remember. Because of the kind of coattails and the fact he's got them in, in this election where we weren't expecting to do so well in, has he now got the right to reshape the Republican Party in his own image? Or are there actually ideologues who are going to be really battling with him to, um, well, to try and make sure that he doesn't? That's what we're watching almost hourly now. It's, it's remarkable because, you know, we're used to someone like Reagan or Obama coming in whose ideas are pretty clearly formulated and understood by the country. Now we have a kind of putty in office, and we don't know what will happen. His first meetings with Paul Ryan were almost a kind of Pinteresque play of two people talking past and around each other. So mm. we don't know that Ryan is going to be his, his co-partner, his partner in all of this, or his enabler. Nobody really knows. There could actually be a kind of contest for power. David Brooks, the uh, columnist in The Times, is already predicting Trump will be impeached within a year because of these uh, eccentricities that um, uh, Diana's mentioned. So who knows where we'll be in the space of, of a month. It's all taking shape in a way that normal political observation and discussion uh, can't penetrate. I mean, to be positive about it, and I think we all have to try to be positive at this stage, he has a record of hiring the best people he can find, the smartest. He also has a record of being an absolutely excellent employer of women. I mean, I was listening to somebody in the Today programme who was, she was a woman in charge of the construction of Trump Tower in 1980. How many pe- women were in charge of massive construction sites? He put his first wife in charge of his biggest hotel. You know, and and he divorced her because she wasn't home at night to cook him dinner. No, it was probably because she was getting older and he fancied one and 10 years <laughs> younger. Uh, his, his daughter is running half the empire. He's actually fine. He is a throwback when it comes to all the the language back to John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson and what used to be the grad senior of actually curiously democratic presidents. So it's a good old tradition. Well, yes, uh, but it is the 21st tradition. century and yeah, I, I know, would but hope but we, we move on a bit. We shouldn't be getting hung up on that. What matters is if the fellow is going to be safe as president and effective as president. And I think Sam's point is a good one. There are things he can do. and Some of them are going to be unraveling Obama's executive orders. There are things he can do that actually could make a big difference to people in those states who have been ignored such as, such as moving <laughs> moving away from 
bathrooms possibly to reworking trade deals with China. It is absolutely true that the deal with China gave China Mm. the um, technology of the the US for nothing. You know, the negotiators have been unbelievably naive. There are a lot of things he can do in the trade side. I'm a natural free trader, but you have to be on the same in the same playing field as the guy you do the deal with, and the U.S. hasn't been. Now, I agree with Ruth about uh, free trade very much. I think, you know, we've done some. Well, we've we've sort of taken on things that maybe we didn't understand what we were doing, and uh, that would be great. And if he wants to invest in infrastructure spending, which will put him at odds with a lot of Republicans in Congress, because they hate that. That's that's you know government welfare. That's terrible. But if he insists on it, or if he gets his way, I think a lot of people would applaud that. I think what's terrifying to people like me. I mean. Uh, people who actually really value things like the Affordable Care Act put 43 million people who never had health care having some level of health care. It's a law that needs to be fixed, to be sure. Trump has said at times uh, that he would like to dismantle the Environmental Protection Agency. Mm. Florida, where I live, well, not literally where I live, but the bottom of the state, is having floods every two or three weeks now. That's not the wrath of God. That's climate change. And Trump, if he persists in saying it's a hoax by the Chinese, we've got real problems along all our coasts, not just Florida, not just the Gulf Coast, but the whole Atlantic coast, and soon it will be the Pacific coast. That terrifies me. So if we look away, Sam, from the um, kind of policy argument that these two have been arguing about, what about the um, sort of social movement um, behind Trump, if it's a movement, or the, the kind of fan base? I mean... Do you think you're going to see flaming crosses in fields in in the South? Um, Or do you think actually he's going to cool down his rhetoric and the whole thing's going to kind of America's going to calm down? I think a lot of that uh, was exaggerated because of the nature of the campaign, the the massive rallies he held. And I went to only one, which I wrote about uh, for Prospect in uh, outside Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. He attracted and was a remiss in not repudiating extremists. But the numbers are very small. And, you know, I was uh, looking back at some of the early reporting on Trump today, and I was struck by something that uh, a caller to the Rush Limbaugh uh, radio program, a very extreme right-wing radio program, said back in March when Trump was beginning to win primaries, he said, we know who Donald Trump is. We are using him to either destroy the Republican Party or to take it over. And I think what we're seeing now is the election was actually much less about Trump than about the people who voted for him. That doesn't mean, as uh, Di- and Diana is quite right about this, that climate change and issues like that are now uh, emerging in an in a alarming way. But actually, it's about the kinds of things he's been um, strong on so far and usefully talking about infrastructure and rebuilding cities, giving people jobs. This is our new Rust Belt Republican Party, and it's very interesting to watch. Now, many commentators, some included, have suggested that this election might be considered as America's Brexit. 
And the implications of that British revolt are still being felt in Parliament, in the courts and well beyond. In this month's prospect, we've got Michael Gove and Ed Miliband thrashing out whether or not MPs need a decisive say. But let's turn now, Ruth, to what you've written for us about what Brexit will do to the border in Ireland. Um, the first thing you do in your um, excellent piece is remind us that there's been a political border for the best part of a century, a cultural border for several. So why would Brexit change anything then? Well, simply because if Britain actually leaves the club, the rules change. I mean, Ireland's problem with Britain has been that it's a a tiny little island separated from the continent by this bigger island. And of course, it's always been subjected by it. I mean, you you are always taken over by your big neighbour. That's the fact of Ireland's life for centuries. I I keep pointing out to them, they're bloody lucky when you think of the neighbours that might have taken them over. You know, better be in the British Empire than be in the German Empire, the Russian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, or a few others I could mention. I mean, just let's go properly back. Four centuries ago, one king, James I, had the great wheeze of sending a whole lot of Scots Presbyterians to calm down northern, the north of Ireland. And four centuries later, they have not integrated I mean, they are a separate tribe from the Irish Catholic tribe. And that's a fact of it. So that's the big cultural difference. They think differently, they have different values and the rest of it. But it it is four centuries and people have got to get over it. But the political thing stemmed from all that. You know, they want to be part of the United Kingdom. Partition had to come in because otherwise you're going to have a civil war Mm -hmm. and you're still in that position. Now, when it came to Brexit, Northern Ireland was split again nationalists wanted to stay in the EU to protect them in a way. That's how they feel about it from Britain. And the um, unionists felt differently. I think there is, as usual, a vast amount of hysteria going on. I think there is tremendous desire by the British and Irish governments to have as soft a landing as possible, for the border to be as low-key as possible, to mm. use technology. If, they, if, if it is a matter of dealing with tariffs and if, if this happens... There are ways now with new technology of dealing with that. You don't have to have customs posts along the 310 miles anymore. And yet you do say that, like, despite having supported Brexit yourself, you, you do feel anxious about what's, how this is going to play out. Oh, I'm anxious. I don't think it's good for Ireland. I mean, I, I was very anxious about which way I'd vote, but in the end I voted for what I thought was best for, the, for both countries, really, in the long run, because I think the EU has passed its useful time. I think it's a disaster, and I think, I think it's going to drag a lot of countries down with it as it goes, it's my view. Um, Ireland may have to swallow hard in a few years' time and um, get out of the EU and work it out with Britain as, as equals. It's possible. You know, it's, it's, I'm sorry for Ireland because it's so dislocating and they feel so helpless. And I really, j- just as on Trump, you know, we've all got to stop being hysterical. Sam, is it something you've followed at all, the Irish peace process? I mean, uh, like, what's your wider feeling about how the interaction of different hostile tribes, if you like, which is what um, Ruth's talking about, is affected by the kind of big picture political context changing as it is doing with Brexit? Well, this is what our politics has now become about uh, globally. Uh, I remember uh, writing at the time, I think it was in, in, in the New York Times after Brexit, uh, I think when Trump was on his a new golf course in Scotland, we had the paradox of someone who was normally seen as a xenophobe, now the global spokesman for this new move towards sovereignty. Our sense in all these different countries of national identity, and there's ethnicity involved in it as well, 
is surging in a way that no one really predicted. Um, maybe everyone will remember a number of years ago, brilliant historian, English, who then moved to America, Tony Jock, wrote a, a book about post-war Europe, which assumed or argued that the EU was kind of the answer for all of democracy going forward. And it just doesn't look that way anymore. Diane, I mean, it, it does seem that kind of the nation state is back and, and the, the tribe is back, if you like. The tribe is definitely back. and But I don't think the tribe ever went away. I think we tried at different points in, in history to overcome tribalism. One of the things I really admired about Ruth's piece was the very instructive history, which certainly uh, many Americans know the um, – you know, the 140 character version of Irish history, you know, and then this bad thing happened and this, then there was the famine and then, you know, they all came to America. But it was so instructive, the kind of attempt to, to religiously and culturally colonize Ulster with all of these Presbyterians, you know, who were held to be completely different kinds of people, um, I grew up in a Presbyterian household and, and a Scots Presbyterian household too. So I do get the, you know, I know who, who has more fun. It's not us. But uh, I think history, it fascinates me how, and certainly in America, we tend to discount history as a powerful force in society because we want to believe that we're immune in America to history and that nothing that happened 50 years ago or 100 years ago matters anymore when in fact over and over we see that and we see that in Ireland still which is heartbreaking because one hopes that there's a point at which we get over it and perhaps one of the great things about Ireland is that I at least I think I've seen movements Toward that, people trying really hard to to get over it and to integrate in a way they never have. But Ruth knows far more about the success of that project than I do. Well, I think I should say that America, of which I'm very fond, played a very malign part in what happened in Ireland because of disaffected Irish who went over and sat in New York really fomenting revolution back in Ireland, and they were doing that from the 19th century on. And they financed it. There wouldn't have been a revolution in 1916 without the financing by Irish Americans. And, and there wouldn't have... We they wouldn't have a congressman, don't we? Peter King, who's been known for uh, his um, ties, shall we say, no, to Norad. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And there are still some of the old Norad crowd who are supporting people trying to murder policemen today. Right. So there was always the money for the arms. So they kept that going for a century since 1916. But just, I mean, with this border, we got... But the Irish don't want that anymore. They're, you know, Quite sensible most too. Them, yeah. we, we've mm-hmm. got um, this um, piece about hard Brexit, which is the way that the politics seem to be playing out. And then there's an argument about whether or not with cooperation with Dublin, they'll be able to smooth the way the, 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 the border would work. But I mean, customs post potentially, kind of passport checks. Really technology can deal with all that. And, and the whole passport thing, it, you see, it, it does exist even now. If, when I fly into Dublin from London, I have to show my passport. Mm. When I fly out of Dublin into London, I don't have to show my passport. The Irish are actually tighter on it. <laughs> yeah. And what about um, the kind of point you were making about how 30, 40 years ago uh, people could have a farm that was on the border? Thomas Slab Murphy, wasn't it? You have a farm on the border and go one way and then go the other if the um, if the police are coming. And that, that, that kind of thing was made easier with EU cooperation, was it, to crack down on it? 
it was easier, but they still have that. And there are still differences in oil prices and that kind of thing. So it's still, there's still plenty of smuggling going on. You know, so it's not going to be an absolute change. I mean, what, what we are, what I am noticing, for instance, there's a news item today saying that Nicola Sturgeon had tried to persuade the Irish government to come and to come to talk to her and to talk to her, you know, on an equal level about what they were all to do about the EU. And they said, no, we are dealing with the UK government in London. They are being very, very grown up and responsible because they know the essence of it, that the British and the Irish have to get together and present really the EU negotiators with the fait accompli. They have to find the ways of dealing with it. And I think they will if the present very sensible government stays in power. Finally, um, Sam, after much delay, it now appears that Bob Dylan will collect his Nobel Prize for Literature. If you told any professional literary critic um, of the 1960s, when his most celebrated verses were, of course, written that this would happen, they'd have said you were joking. Uh, probably, with, with, with a few exceptions. Uh, there were some who saw all along that Dylan had extraordinary literary powers. What's interesting to me is uh, he seems uh, ambivalent about all of this. He is a great writer. He knows he's a great writer. Um, but he's not only a writer, and, and which is a shocking thing to say uh, to a literary audience, but he is primarily a popular musician. He's a composer and singer and songwriter, and I think all this is somewhat baffling to him and also disconcerting. Um, in his youth, he was like very much a, a radical figure, Diane, a, a figure on the left, but also very consciously and always an American figure, wasn't he? L- locating himself and his writing in a, you know, an American song tradition. Well, in an American song tradition that, of course, partakes of all kinds of older traditions. But he he didn't like being called a folk singer, though he partook of folk music. He preferred maybe to be more of a blues man, though that's not quite right either. There's really nobody like him. And I think he drew from so many sources. I mean, he he has some songs that are actually ballads, ballads that would stand up in form to, you know, 16th and 17th century ballads that you might, you know, hear still in the border country in Scotland and England. Mm. He has some songs that are blues songs. He has some that are very gospel inflected. Mm. I, I mean, it's really extraordinary, just the output of his career. I'm, and do you my, think it's literature? Yes, I do. Mm. I mean, we read a lot of poems now that were once sung. So they were primarily music. So why not? I mean, there are songs in Shakespeare. There are, you know, songs in, well, gosh, in literature going back to and beyond the Bible uh, that would have once been sung, and we now read them as literature. And I think drawing these lines is is not helpful. And I look forward to seeing Bob Dylan in white tie, that's all I can say, <laughs> standing there with a bunch of, you know, princesses and tiaras. I think that would be hilarious. Well, I sympathize with that. I can't claim to be objective about it because I married a man who was very keen on Dylan and I used to flee the room when he was put on, when he was playing him because his whiny voice drove me senseless. Um, and I, I try to read the stuff since I can't listen to him singing it. Um, and it's, it's okay. You know, he's good. But he wasn't a patch on, on Cohen, Leonard Cohen. The late Leonard Cohen now. The late Leonard Cohen. Yes. I, I, was walking, I was walking through Trafalgar Square and the, there was a busker singing Hallelujah. And there were hundreds of people gathered around. And it was, you know, almost cheerful, the whole thing. I think Cohen was a, a true poet. I think Cohen was infinitely better. And he could sing. 
Uh, don't tell Leonard uh, Cohen that because he always said Dylan was the greater artist. Yeah, but he was a nice. Um, he was a decent man. You see, he was modest. Yeah, no, Dylan. Um, Dylan's a really singular figure. He belongs in a different tradition. Um, he belongs to the American visionary romantic tradition of Whitman and Melville, uh, and even someone he had very little in common with uh, Saul Bellow. Um, mm. That's the tradition he belongs to. He was much closer to Allen Ginsberg personally, although uh, Dylan is a far greater figure. Um, he is one of those people who can't really be classified. And so any attempt to do it diminishes him, which is, I think, one reason the uh, Nobel makes him uneasy, though I'm sure he'll be very happy to collect the money. Not that he needs it, but he'll be very happy to collect it. You contrast him uh, a little bit in your piece with um, Bruce Springsteen, with his memoirs just now. Bruce Springsteen some might say is more a figure for this hour with his kind of focus on the kind of uh, blue collar worker and, and the anguish, Sam, but you argue that um, he ain't a patch on Bob. Oh no, no, no. He, he's a much smaller figure. And of course he realizes this. It was interesting to see the other night, just before the election, Hillary Clinton had a enormous rally in Philadelphia and Springsteen performed. And uh, he did uh, one of his famous songs, Thunder Road, but he did it with a guitar and harmonica. And I think uh, wanted to sound a little bit like Dylan, whom he admires very much. Springsteen is a, is a narrower figure than Dylan. He has a very devoted following. He's a very good showman, which Dylan never was. But, but uh, the sources are just not as strange and dark and unusual as they are with Dylan. I think uh, Diana's quite right. Dylan drew from an enormous breadth of uh, music. Remember, he finished with the folk scene when he was 23 years old. <laughs> he recorded his last album, Another Side of Bob Dylan, that, his last folk album, and never wrote another folk song after that. And he'd already written some of the greatest in history, there are early songs of Dylan that many people don't realize he wrote. They think they're old standards, uh, blowing in the wind and the times they were changing, because his command of the idiom was so great. One of the points I tried to make in the uh, piece I wrote uh, for Prospect is that Dylan never wanted to be the authentic figure that someone like Springsteen does. He was always about mimicry and impersonation and, and protean changes of, of I changed voice. my voice for a bit and turned wrote out a country album, you say. That's exactly right. His look, his religions, he has a line in his memoirs. His memoir is brilliant. Uh, Chronicles, for anyone who hasn't read it, it's one of the major modern American autobiographies. Uh, you should read it just for his description of Roy Orbison. He said, things sang like a professional criminal. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much uh, indeed. Uh, so that's it for Headspace for this uh, month. We hope you've enjoyed it. My thanks to Sam Tannenhills, to Diane Roberts, to Ruth Dudley-Edwards. If you enjoyed it, then the December edition of Prospect magazine will also delight you with contributions from Christian Walmar on the driverless car delusion and James Harkin writing about spin and death in Raqqa. And then there is also, of course, plenty more on Trump, including a special feature on whether the Constitution is going to save us from his wilder whims. That's in the shops from mid-November, but of course you can't wait. So you can do even better by going to prospectmagazine.co.uk and hitting subscribe. You know you want to. But for now, thanks for listening. I'm Tom Clark. The producer was Matt Hill at Rethink Audio, and we'll see you again next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.
even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.